Today's episode is brought to you by K Chess's Famous Men Who Never Lived, out now from Tin House Books. Chess's debut novel follows a group of refugees from an alternate timeline, a parallel universe as they adjust to life in our own New York City and reckon with the loss of the places and loved ones they left behind. Charles Yu calls it conceptually adventurous yet full of feeling, and Karen Thompson Walker says this inventive book does what only fiction can do, describes an impossible world in order to more clearly show us our own. For readers of Station Eleven and Exit West, Famous Men Who Never Lived explores the effects of displacement on our identities, the communities that come together through circumstance, and the power of art to save us. I'm particularly excited to share this conversation with writer, translator, and poet Christina Rivera Garza, as it is a rare treat to get to talk to a writer touring for their book in a translated form. And Rivera Garza is such an incredible thinker about her own work, about living in a world of two languages, and about why she foregrounds what she calls second languageness in her work. For those subscribed to the bonus archive, in addition to Rivera Garza reading from her long poem, Third World, there's also an extended conversation with one of the most important translators of Latin American literature into English, Suzanne Jill Levine, about translating Rivera Garza, as well as about what it is like to pursue a career in translation. You can find all of this, as well as the possibility of getting other Tin House goodies from Morgan Parker's Magical Negro to Ursula K. Le Guin's Conversations on Writing at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer, poet, translator, and critic Cristina Rivera Garza. Rivera Garza is the author of six novels, three collections of short stories, five collections of poetry, and three nonfiction books. She's the only author who has won the Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz Prize two times, in 2001 for her novel Nadie Me Vera Llorar, and in 2009 for her novel La Muerte Me Da. She is also the winner of the German Anna Segers Prize and the French Roger Caillois Award for Latin American Literature. Christina Rivera Garza is Distinguished Professor in Hispanic Studies at the University of Houston and instrumental in starting the first Spanish-language creative writing PhD program in the United States there. 
Rivera Garza studied urban sociology at the National Autonomous University of Mexico and earned a doctorate in Latin American history at the University of Houston with a dissertation on La Castañeda, Mexico's most infamous mental hospital and the social history of mental illness in early 20th century Mexico. Rivera Garza is the translator of writers from Juliana Spar to Don Miche into Spanish, as well as the books Notes on Conceptualism by Vanessa Place and Robert Fitterman and The Undercommons by Fred Moten and Stefano Harney. Yet despite being one of the best-known writers in Mexico today, having won six of Mexico's highest literary awards, and with Carlos Fuentes calling Nadie Me Vera Llorar as not only one of the most perturbing and beautiful novels ever written in Mexico, but one of the most notable works of fiction in the literature of the Spanish-speaking world at the start of the 21st century, Rivera Garza's work is just now being considered and discussed in the Anglophone world, with two translations of her work in the last year. The Iliac Crest, out from Feminist Press, translated by Sarah Booker, and the book she's here to discuss today, The Tiger Syndrome, out from Dorothy Books, translated by Suzanne Jill Levine and Aviva Kena, with starred reviews from Publishers Weekly and Kirkus, and picked by the BBC as one of the best books of 2018. National Book Award-winning poet Daniel Bezertsky says the following of Rivera Garza's latest book in English. If The Tiger Syndrome is a book of illness, it's also about exile, disappearance, borders, love, language, and translation, desire, capitalism and its discontents, fairy tales, and what it means to be possessed by the madness of others and the madness of ourselves. The murmurs that haunt the detective in the Taiga Syndrome evoke the history of Mexican fiction, most notably Juan Rulfo, but this is not a religious state of purgatory. It's more like Apocalypse Now, fused with the worlds of Clarice Lispector and Jorge Luis Borges. In other words, there is no one writing novels as phantasmagorically exquisite as Cristina Rivera Garza's The Taiga Syndrome, which is both quietly poetic and narratively unhinged, a crucial addition to her distinguished oeuvre. Welcome to Between the Covers, Cristina Rivera Garza. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. So on the surface, at least, the Taiga Syndrome is about a failed ex-detective who has turned to writing noir mystery novels, but nevertheless is sort of drawn out of retirement and takes the case of a man who wants to find the woman who left him, who disappeared into the Taiga, the boreal forest, with another man never to return. But it doesn't really feel like that is what the Taiga Syndrome is about, even though that's I think a pretty accurate description of mm -hmm. the plot. Mm -hmm. um, so perhaps we could begin with the questions that animated the project for you, mm -hmm. or the circumstances or impulses or desires. Yeah, no, no. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, what you described is essentially the plot. Uh, but I have never believed that plot is the most important component of a novel. Uh, it's it's one of them. It's obviously uh, relevant. Uh, but uh, novels or writing projects, more generally speaking, uh, are made of um, many other um, operations. And so what I would have to say here is that um, my female nameless detective has been with me now uh, through several books. Mm. So I have uh, another novel and uh, 
three or four long short stories in which uh, she's uh, she's been leading the whole exploration the, the the exploration that relies on plot but also the linguistic and more uh, the larger exploration of the book and and in this case I, I would say that I was very interested in um, exploring the possibility of moving as far away as I could literally in, in terms of uh, you know linguistically speaking in terms of the the human search uh, that that is uh, at the core of every single writing project, I suppose. Um, and so I wanted to move far away. I wanted to know how far away I could go while being still legible. Hmm. So if you are really moving away, if you are really trying to cross as many borders as you can, there is going to be a point in which you will become illegible, right? And uh, and as, uh, as someone who likes to take risks in, uh, in terms of my writing projects, I, I want to move and explore new territories. But at the same time, I want to make sure that I have a, a reader with me, that I have an accomplice, a companion with me. And that, that obviously implies that I have to, to be still legible. So I, I wanted to test those waters. And I suppose that's, that's one of the reasons why I chose these, um, this landscape uh, this geography, this territory, the taiga, uh, for someone who I was writing this novel in between Mexico City and San Diego. So someone who is in that in this area of the world, perhaps the taiga is what appears to be mm-hmm. more, um, you know, as far as way, away as you can go. And so that's that's uh, the initial, I would say, impulse or the question that I had in mind. Yeah. Well, I, I would love to explore some of the ways in which you have us cross borders of language and linguistics. So, I mean, because I feel like one of the ways you could look at this book is it's a book about language. Yes. Um, or more specifically about the translational aspects of communication and signification. Yeah. Uh, because everything that we experience goes through levels of, multiple levels of mediation. And thus we have to sort of question the authenticity of everything that comes to us as a reader. But I also think the characters in a way have to question what they're receiving as as characters. So the most obvious way this is true is with the relationship between the detective uh, and the translator that mm-hmm. um, the detective hires to be able to speak to the native inhabitants mm-hmm. of the taiga. You have this wonderful line about the translator that goes, he chose to use the language that we would speak during our journey through the boreal forest, a language that was not strictly his nor mine, a third space, a second tongue in common. And so in this sense, we, we don't just rely on the translator to carry meaning across the mm-hmm. divide between a, a language foreign to the detective and her own, but into a shared language that neither one of them actually speak as their primary language. Mm-hmm. So the language that they're operating in is not the primary language of either character. So tell us why you wanted this setup and yeah. what that setup does um, what that setup provides for you yeah. in, in the story. Yeah, what an interesting question. Uh, you know, very often we go through, um, when you're watching movies, and uh, they, they, take place, they take place in, in foreign countries that obviously speak in a, a different language, a language other than your own. Uh, very often um, we act 
there is this silent pact. Like we are supposed to act as though communication is just um, um, achievable. That is, it's going to be somehow smooth and clear. And uh, and it seems to me that in many situations that we go, th- go through in life, the case is just the opposite. Mm. That even if we speak the same language, we need mechanisms able that allow us to to translate the experience of others to our own experience, right? And um, and in this novel, I wanted to make sure that all these different levels of mediation and and different levels of negotiation in between languages were uh, a central component of the novel. Hmm. So as much as we we spoke about plot at the beginning, but I wanted this mediation to be sort of the main protagonist of the novel. And that's one of the reasons, in addition to the presence of the the translator and the, and the, the, the description, of how slow and how complicated and the many layered process that that uh, translating involves, I wanted to be sure that the readers knew that this novel, in fact, was also going through through a very complicated mediate, mediating process, and that's one of the reasons why I chose to start most of um, many many paragraphs with the with the word that mm-hmm. que. In Spanish, which is 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 a is a sign of indirect speech. So we we when we use that that we know that there is someone else involved, that there has been uh, another um, presence, and uh, and someone else's intervention and interpretation in whatever I'm saying or whatever the character is saying. And I wanted the reader to be able to listen to these different echoes and uh, and the possibility that these other participations um, were uh, tainted deforming uh, informing too but but somehow uh, reshaping uh, what the characters were going to be understanding and therefore how they were, they were going to be reacting to whatever they were going through so that that um, adds uh, a level of complexity that I wanted to bring to the novel because it's, it's the level in which I'm asking the readers, you are the next step. Your interpretation is as valid as the ones that we are going to be discussing here in this book. And it's not going to be easy, mm-hmm. right? You're going to have to risk something too. Yeah, I love that that take on it. Could we hear a little bit? I marked out a little bit of the of a section about the translator and I was hoping mm-hmm. maybe you'd read a, a little section for this us. This one? Perfect. Yeah. Let me see. I remember how many times I repeated the same phrase, tongue to tongue, a speaker of their tongue who would translate everything into my tongue. A smile, no, a laugh, a look of intrigue or distress, a sigh or something more serene. In the report I could write for the man who had had two wives, I would ask him to take into account that nothing had happened exactly as I claimed. I would tell him that nothing happens as it is written, and I would constantly repeat this or something like it. I would ask him in a careful and tactful way, assuming that he knew, but realizing also that these types of things are always hard to bear in mind, to take into account that there was a great distance between speech and writing. Take your time, I would remind him. Read as if there were many minutes, even hours, between the words spoken and the ones written down.
transcribed the phrases. I could tell him, for example, when I wrote, I asked them if they had electricity and they responded by showing me a lit candle that he should realize I had, in fact, pronounced a question. But before I received the answer, which came much later, the translator had made me repeat the question several times and then had said it several times himself until the inhabitants of the village in the taiga would understand it and answer. And then we had to wait, translator, inhabitants, myself, until the action showing the candle and articulating the words, we don't have electricity, was heard and understood, first with surprise, and then, finally, disbelief. We've been listening to Christina Rivera Garza read from The Tiger Syndrome from Dorothy Books. So even before the detective mentions the act of translation, she talks about a great distance between speech and writing, which suggests that this is true even when there's no actual translator mm-hmm. involved, that this distance exists even when there's no um, negotiation between two languages. Now we're negotiating between speech and writing. Uh, and you mentioned earlier when you are talking about translation about also this translational aspect of just communication, even if we're in the same language. And I was hoping maybe you could lean into that a little bit more about the the distance between thought and speech and thought and language that perhaps translation is also happening, not just between people, but within one person. Yeah, no, absolutely. I believe so. I think one of the greatest challenges is, is, uh, as we write books, I mean, that's at least the the challenge I I take very seriously. What um, my desire when I'm writing is to bring experience into paper. And that's one of the most complicated, ethically uh, challenging aspects of, of our trade. So what do we do with a language that belongs to everybody, to entire communities of practitioners. What do we do with that piece of language uh, that we use, that, that we are trying to inhabit and, and work with, and, um, and with the experience of others? We are always talking, writing about others, even, even when we write about ourselves. It's, uh, once it is written down, it's, it's another material right there, right? So that transition, uh, thinking about that transition, um, uh, accepting the challenge that that thinking about that brings brings up, I think that's the most interesting and inescapable element of writing. We all tell stories. Uh, that's that's how we become social beings, right? But writers, I think, especially our our or at least what I see as my uh, my field, what what makes me a writer, not not only a storyteller, is to think precisely about that. That, that space that goes from experience to language, from experience into page. Because obviously, yes, the, the, the negotiation that we see more clearly in the translation in between two, two languages is always present in our relationship with ourselves, with language, in the way in which we um, approach our material world and the way in which um, we participating when language does in terms of, of uh, making all those experiences shareable. Mm. So so I don't think of this as a minor element. Uh, I think that, that goes to the heart of writing. That's when, when writing becomes, a, you know, an ethical uh, project and, and a political one as well, obviously. Mm. Mm-hmm. You've before quoted Mireille Gansel's ideas about 
translation oh, from yeah. translations as transhumanists. Yeah, um, it's a wonderful book, by the way. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Some of those, some of those quotes you've said uh, from her are uh, that translation is both a risk taking and a continual reexamination. Uh, that translation is a learning to listen to the silences in between the lines. And that translation is the essence of hospitality. Mm -hmm. And you've also said that you are less interested in fidelity and more on what you call versioning. Mm -hmm. That instead of thinking of translation as a smooth transition or harmonious process, you look at how translation brings up dissent or discordance or deviation and the ways translation raises issues of power. Um, I'd be interested in hearing more about what you mean by versioning in Mm -hmm. in light of this. Yeah, yeah. And in relationship to the Tiger Syndrome also. Yeah. Well, I have to say, we started to talk about the Tiger Syndrome, how happy I've been working with translators, uh, Jill Levine and Aviva Kana. Uh, and I can tell you uh, a number of, of stories about our conversations in regards to specific phrases and all that. It's been just a pleasure working with them. Uh, Jill is a legendary translation translator, and she's worked with um, many of the boom writers of the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And, and I've been just so privileged in, in working with her. And, uh, and, and I think that's something that, that, that we shared, uh, our agreement that about um, translator, translation not being necessarily this, um, as, as I put it there, a harmonious process, something that is going to uh, inherently uh, achieve some sort of um, peaceful um, agreement on things, right? Uh, but it's a possibility for us to take a look at various ways of looking at and approaching the world in which we live. And I think in that sense, translation allows us to, to generate a critical thinking and, and when in luck, uh, a critical practice as well, right? My ideas about translation has ch- have changed dramatically ever since I started to translate myself. At the beginning, it was just the impulse when I really loved something and uh, and I thought that my friends in Mexico or in Latin America would benefit from, you know, specific poems or essays. I would just uh, out of love. I would try to translate, and then I've been more careful about you know picking my my projects. But uh, in doing that, I'm I'm always interested in in pieces of work that might, or in my view, uh, will generate um, uh, cross-border dialogues, and dialogues that I obviously think that are relevant for our life, for our political lives and our daily lives in whatever we live, right? And and in that sense, I'm I'm not as interested in... um, in issues of, as I said there, of fidelity. Of, uh, I mean, obviously, I want to capture what um, the the core, the heart of of the works that I'm interested in. But I think I'm always thinking in terms of the context, in term, in terms of the larger conversation that I see them being part of. And in that sense, in that sense, I'm talking about versions of, mm-hmm. meaning that my activity as a translator is is also uh, informing the work and making that work uh, something something to- totally new in yeah. many ways, which has happened with these translators too. I've, I've told Jill uh, and Sarah Booker the. Trans- translator of the Iliad Crest, that what they, they've given me with these translations are new books, books that are new to me as well. Yeah, yeah. and what's interesting about the books, 
obviously these are new versions mm-hmm. of the same book or mm-hmm. not the same book. Mm-hmm. Um, but versioning also sort of enters the plot of these books, I think also. So one of the, I, one of the things that makes the Taiga syndrome, I think strange and wonderful is you've juxtaposed two different genres and these two genres have traditionally speaking, I think have a different relationship to plot. And I think they also have a different relationship to sentence level syntax. Mm-hmm. So we have the detective genre or the noir novel and we have the fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And I think of versions and versions and versioning when I think of both of these aspects of the Taiga syndrome. So on the one hand, we have a failed detective who's trying to write fiction based on her failed cases. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, she's versioning mm-hmm. her own failed mm-hmm. career. Mm-hmm. But then she comes out of retirement to pursue the, the case of a missing woman in the mm-hmm. forest. So there's this sort of doubling back on the original text mm-hmm. of her life. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, we have a man and a woman who disappear into the, into the wilderness, into the unknown forest. And that's sort of the heart of many fairy tales, this story of, mm-hmm. of a boy and a girl disappearing. And, and you do an explicit meditation on the versioning of fairy tales within the Taiga syndrome. So you, you look at the um, quote-unquote original versions of Hansel and Gretel and Little Red Riding Hood versus the more well-known and more recent versions. Mm-hmm. So I was hoping maybe you could talk about some of the things that you see that were different in the original or older mm-hmm. versions and the newer versions mm-hmm. and what the the gap between those two was doing for you in terms of your meditation and mm-hmm. in the Taiga syndrome mm-hmm. narrative. You know, forest uh, intrigued me greatly. Um, and and as uh, as most kids in um i guess middle class backgrounds even if i didn't read which i did but if i hadn't read um fairy tales you know childhood is is informed by fairy tales in one way or another uh, that's the kind of societies i think um that we are and I think uh, the detective, uh, the noir, the, the, the genre, it's, it's just uh, so common to us. Even if, uh, if you don't read them, you know how they work. And I think I, what I thought at the beginning when I was uh, working on, on, um, on the territory, on, on you know, the heart of this project, the Taiga Syndrome, I thought that if I really wanted to move as far away as possible, I needed to have something that was legible for myself and for readers. I didn't want to move in those places by myself alone. Um, and, and I thought that it would be very useful to, to bring with me uh, these genres that readers and people, uh, generally speaking, understand and are familiar with. And, and so in that sense, recurring to uh, these, these fairy tales, specifically these two, the Hansel and Gretel and, and, and the Caperucita Roja, um, were, were um, very useful in terms of creating a, a familiarity that may not, uh, um, you know, scare people that wanted to go with me to the limits of, of the forest. But at the same time, I wanted, to, I wanted to think about a more contemporary forest, uh, a forest in which exploitation is taking place, where labor uh, is, is a major component of place, in which, um, you know, issues of 
sex and uh, discrimination and stuff like that is, 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 are also um, relevant elements of this forest life. And, um, and what I thought is that, you know, capitalism, generally speaking, is her fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I wanted to bring that, the ferocity of, uh, of, of that um, mode of producing wealth that, uh, and, the, and the great uh, consequences that that brings upon landscape and human life. Uh, so that was my forest. And, uh, and and what I thought is that the earlier versions of Hansel and Gretel, for example, are, are way more related uh, and more explicit about all these different questions of accumulation than were later versions of these stories. And so I wanted to get to the heart of that, to that more um, obvious and uh, uh, bloodier uh, and, and more um, complicated story. Uh, which I think, um, well, goes to the heart of, of many of um, our dilemmas, I think, in yeah. our world as, as, as we live in it. Well, when you talk about wanting to make a contemporary forest, one of my favorite lines in the book is from the man who hires the detective to find the woman who left him, when he, where he says, this is not a fairy tale detective. But then he goes on to add sort of dubiously, this is a story about being in love. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's no story that's more mediated and more fairy tale like than the stories of love. And mm-hmm. I'm sure we it sort of casts a, a light back on the fact that I, I'm guessing most people around love are in, are enacting gestures that are informed by fairy tales mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. in a contemporary way. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. And and I think that happens a lot with our major narratives. And uh, I think writing is a creative writing is a way to explore the other side of these narratives and to make them more complicated or as complicated as going through them is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the word taiga refers both to a place, the boreal forest, and also, so the boreal forest in the, in, in the tundra of, south of the tundra of Siberia, North America. Mm-hmm. And also it, it refers to a syndrome, mm-hmm. uh, a syndrome that occurs where certain inhabitants of the taiga suffer terrible anxiety attacks and make suicidal attempts to escape the taiga. So given that it's both a, a, a place and a psychological mm-hmm. state, mm-hmm. Um, in, in a response to a question about this, you answered that you think less about space as such and more about territory which you describe as space plus politics. And yeah. I think maybe you touched on this already in the way that you're um, looking at, say, the works of the fairy tale of capitalism and accumulation within the forest. But could you talk a little bit more about the yeah. differences between territory and space? Yeah, you know, I, I've been reading a lot and I'm very interested in, in recent works that I have um, rightfully placed attention on uh, our natural world. Uh, but I, I've, I have also become very concerned about ways in which this seems to deflect attention about the many conflicts that that this whole thing entails. And so at times I'm, I'm um, rather perplexed at, at the fact that we seem to be writing about nature as though nature is something that remains uh, out there for our contemplation and or uh, enjoyment uh, or preoccupation, right? And... Uh, 
I, I think we are inextricably linked. And, and in that very close organic relationship lies, uh, well, many of the dilemmas that we're going through as, as contemporary society that we are. And so I, I just uh, wanted, wanted to remind myself, at least, that whenever we talk about nature, whenever we talk about space, whenever we talk about landscape, uh, we are, in fact, referring to a very conflicted um, areas of our social life. And uh, and these conflicts might be, you know, political, economic uh, at, at heart, but are also metaphysical and spiritual, and uh, and they they just crisscross all our experience and and the way in which we conceive ourselves as agents of uh, or participants in this in this whole um, uh, context, and so I, I I just think that writing is a way of, uh, as I said earlier, complicating things or making trying to share them in a way that is as complicated as as we go through very often we don't have either the time or the predisposition to well we have to go through our life right we have to make things manageable right yeah. but then we have books too and in books we thought we are not going to resolve those issues but at the same time we we might give the space so that that these sort of um multi-layered experience might bloom might become as as um as complex as they are that's that's what really what concerns me when i'm writing and that, that was the difference that I was trying to, to make in terms of space and territory. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Christina Rivera Garza about her latest book in English, The Taiga Syndrome from Dorothy. I wanted to read another quote that you said, and it's, it is, uh, Just as I write from and through a body, a body among bodies, I do so in territories linked by economic inequality and cultural diversity. Am I addressing the question of accumulation? This is what I ask of my writing process. Am I attentive enough to issues of territory and embodiment? Answers to these questions not only generate different plot lines, but also encourage a wide array of formal explorations. I am increasingly interested in the material conditions that allow or don't allow the writing process, and I have tried to bring this interest as a motive, both in terms of plot and in terms of literary strategy and all my writing projects. Mm -hmm. I, I was hoping maybe you could explain further um, both what you mean by the question of accumulation yeah. and also what you mean by the material conditions that allow or don't allow the writing process and any ways that might link into the, the bringing of the Taiga syndrome yeah. into the world too. Yeah, yeah. Usually, this is not always the case, but usually when you are in, in um, writing workshops, most of the attention goes to plot lines, creation of characters, dialogue, narrative arcs, things of that sort. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking mostly about fiction right now. Right. Um, but then it, it seems to me that when we started to pose questions about bodies in connection to other bodies, bodies and production, uh, which is essentially the question about accumulation, right? I mean, what, what do we do in terms of producing the world in which we live? And how do we connect with others? And in what kind of vertical ways we do that? How are hierarchies created and all that? So once we start to think about that, I think it's very complicated to go 
back into these little boxes of, um, you know, character and the psychology of the character and the dialogue and things like that. Not that they are not relevant or that are non-existent. Obviously, this, these are issues that we, we work with. These are our tools, the tools of our trade. But I think um, they become something else. Mm-hmm. And I'm very interested in this something else that, that they might become if we actually continue pressing these questions into the, into the writing as such. Mm-hmm. I'm a reader of uh, so-called experimental literature. Um, I really uh, am very interested in, in that kind of radical exploration of language and what it entails. I'm a reader of um, uh, experimental literature from the United States, mostly from the West Coast. And... Um, and uh, one of the things that I, I become also concerned about is that at times those literary experiments seem to be done at the level of form, but not necessarily uh, they are not necessarily reaching um, all these other questions that that linked literature and writing to to politics and to ethics. So I'm, I'm I become way more interested in in the kind of uh, literary experimentation that takes into into account how race and class and gender and linguistic diversity and accumulation and labor and work and all that kind of thing problematizes what we do and what we do is that what we what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation how it problematizes a relationship with language as practitioners of a language that we don't own, right? And as practitioners of languages that, at least in my case, I don't aspire to master as much as to work through. Hmm. And and it seems to me that once I get into that state of mind, uh, I start to think about writing in, in such a in, in a way that does not, does not necessarily um, um, emphasizes the, the usual components of, of fiction as I was listing those at the beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to return to this, mm-hmm. the doubling of the, of the psychic state, mm-hmm. the taiga syndrome and mm-hmm. the geography, the, mm-hmm. the taiga, in relationship to translation and versioning and whether one can really separate psychic states from where one's body is in place. Mm-hmm which makes me think of a couple things either you have said or your narrator has said. You've mentioned something uh, that Antoine Volodin mm-hmm. used to say, that the ultimate end of books is to meddle with the dreams of the readers, yeah. thus forming a kind of dreamlike community, which I love. Isn't that great? Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Yes. And our narrator in the Tiger Syndrome says, we all carry a forest inside us, yes, the wilderness to which we are returning, the long way to becoming missing. We go to a place we imagined as foreign and find instead that we are home. Mm-hmm. The quote, which I, which I love, makes me think of something that Ricky Ducournay said in her collection, The Deep Zoo, that the forest is the place human dreams come from and that the paradox of the real is that a thing must be dreamed before it can be real. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's a wonderful quote. And this to me almost suggests that for a thing to be real, we must have a place that exists that resists our comprehension, um, a place of otherness where dreams can be born. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. that the space where a dream is born is is something that is, is almost not us, but then becomes us, mm-hmm. um, which makes me 
wonder what happens to the real when we dis- destroy the place of otherness, mm-hmm. um, which in the case of um, fairy tales is more often than not the forest. Mm-hmm. So um, when I think about the differences between, this is just me, pont- I don't know, pontificating or mm-hmm. theorizing, but mm-hmm. when I think about how the the forest has become less bloody and less dangerous and less uh, un- unknown mm-hmm. in fairy tales, I want, does that, does that correlate with the ways in which, um, forests have become more humanized mm-hmm. over time or smaller and or more dehumanized too. Yeah. And yeah. T- dehumanized, mm-hmm. but more, um, managed mm-hmm. in a way. So mm-hmm. less completely, um, resistant to, uh, our, our knowing them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was hoping you could speak to this, this these questions that your narrator poses, which are what is between imagining a forest and living in a forest? Mm -hmm. What brings together the writing of a forest with the lived experience of a forest? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is just a a wonderful take on, on, on these questions, which you just mentioned. And, uh, I, I just can't help but uh, say, first of all, that what you have described as, uh, these place of unknowing, this place of where primeval questions uh, arise, uh, to me, that's writing. I mean, that's that's a place, that's my forest in, in many ways. Um, I, I go to writing less because I know what I'm writing about and more because I'm trying to explore things that I might, might be alive or bothering me in my intuition. But um, and, and then the writing is actually the searching for that. And now that I'm writing specifically to look for, for answers, as, as the saying goes, but just um, I, I have to go through the, the whole trajectory. I have to follow the thread of, of thought. And uh, to its ultimate consequences, and and sometimes the, the, these consequences are not uh, the production of knowledge, but the production of complicity, mm-hmm. the production of these uh, um, what what you mentioned there, the dreamlike connection with others that is not necessarily based on what we know, but um, what what we might um, um, produced in a, just by way of contact. And that's something that, that we cannot know in advance, that we will know, if at all, when it's happening. And, uh, and to me, that's, that's just a description of what writing is. Mm. You know, that's, uh, there are books, entire books, that have uh, um, shaped my life, and not only my, my intellectual life, but my life as such. Uh, and not necessarily because I understood what they were about, not because I got the message, but, but because they haunt me in in all their openness, and uh, and that's the kind of book that 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 I cherish the one, the ones that I keep with me and the mm-hmm. ones that I aspire to write. So that's the reason why Bolodin's quote is so relevant to me. I, I truly believe that believe that um, when your book becomes uh, a component of someone else someone else's dreams, then you have achieved something. Yeah. Who cares about the reviews? Although I, I, I do like them. <laughs> yeah. Especially when they're good. <laughs> yeah, when they're good, I love them. Uh, but but once uh, once they become um, part of um, a person's dreams, then I, I really think that then you have achieved something. Yeah. Yeah. I mm-hmm. love I love that as a as a potential aspiration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah totally. So, uh, so I want to take a lot of what we've discussed and bring it to the, this question and the phenomenon of, of borders. Yeah. 
because much of your work deals with this mm -hmm. uh, question of borders. And Sarah Booker, the translator of the Iliac Crest, she writes in her translator's note for the book that the Iliac Crest engages with borders between the North and the South, the living and the dead, male and female, fiction and reality, and lucidity and madness. And I feel like many of these polarities exist in the Taiga Syndrome, mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. um, but when I think of the Taiga, the boreal forest, and, and Taiga as a psychic, potentially as a dream space, mm -hmm. I also think of writing outside of fairy, tale, fairy tales where the forest is a place not just of danger, but of transformation. Yeah. And it feels like that space has disappeared as forests have disappeared when I'm trying to link the Taiga to the Taiga syndrome. And I'm mm -hmm. thinking about the role forests used to play even in non-fairy tale stories, like in, in 19th century American short fiction. Of course. Um, you'd still see the forest and the wilderness as a place that everyday people would pass through. Mm -hmm. And it was a, a space, um, a non-human space. So like in a, a, a Nathaniel Hawthorne story, there weren't just the dangers of, of wolves or other animals, but there were also the dangers of humans breaking norms in those spaces. Mm -hmm. So you might find um, people who go to the forest to operate under different rules than the town that they came from. Mm -hmm. um, that could be um, in some of his stories, for instance, uh, someone performing a satanic ritual or uh, or witchcraft or something called witchcraft to further other whatever they're doing that's different mm -hmm. than what they do in their in their normal lives. So I wondered if human dreams come from the forest, and if something has to be dreamed for it to become real, if it if it is something about the borderlessness of forests, of actual forests and psychic ones, something mm -hmm. about the possibility of crossing borders and crossing norms that makes these spaces vital. Hmm. Um, and I guess I wondered about that in terms of you're not just pushing people through borders of language. You're pushing people to the edges of human civilization in a mm -hmm. way. So mm -hmm. we're, we're going to the margins of where humans live. And is there something about that, um, yeah. the seeking of a borderless space that mm -hmm. used to be, I think, are almost narratively architecturally part of the stories we used to mm -hmm. tell mm -hmm. and no long, and now we we find another way to do that since mm -hmm. often people who are writing aren't having forests as part of their lives anymore yeah but i, yeah. I want to hear a little bit about um the pushing to the boundary of landscape yeah. which mm -hmm. also then becomes a psychological pushing yeah you know what what uh, this line this this question brings me to is the um, the issues of margins, I think I've, I've been always interested in what is happening, not at the center of things, but what is um, the consequence of, of whatever is happening in, in, at the center of uh, political discussions or economic uh, growth or these other phenomena. I'm interested in what is, what is um, thought about, made into... In, in these margins of society. I think the forest that, that we are being alluding to, to um, might be, um, in, in another novel that I wrote earlier, No One Will See Me Cry, the, the peripheries of Mexico City in the early 20th century, for example, as a space that has been, uh, that is in alert and kind of responding critically uh, to the decision-making that takes place in downtown Mexico City where the, the powers, when authorities are, are making the, most of the you know, decisions. And um, I just think that there is this energy 
And um, this possibility of criticism and rebellion, this uh, possibility of insubordination uh, precisely in those areas that are less um, uh, surveilled than others. And, and, and right now in the taiga is the forest, and in the, um, the Iliad crest is that the, 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 ocean, the presence of the ocean and the border between the city of the north and the city of the south. And as I said, the, the, the uh, insane asylum mm-hmm. in, uh, in early 20th century Mexico. So in different ways, using different strategies and, and, and different levels of um, uh, realism in all these stories, because... As you've noticed, I've moved from uh, uh, some works that are based on documentary research to works that might reach the, the, the you know, the fantastic, is working within the, the, the contract of the fantastic. So, uh, but in all of them, I think what, what is common to all of them is, is this willingness to go to places that are not necessarily at the center of things. And... Uh, and I'm going there for that energy mm-hmm. and for that complication. And uh, that's where life occurs, I think. That is when it's uh, erupting and that's what, when, when things happen. Mm-hmm. Well, one of your nonfiction books is an engagement with the work of Juan Rulfo. Yeah. And others, like the blurb that I mentioned at the beginning of Daniel Bozitsky, um, mention Rulfo in relationship to the Taiga Syndrome. And I did wonder about Rulfo's portrayal of the town Kamala, yeah. um, the real and, and the imagined town in relationship to your book. Uh, do you see your real and psychic territory in the Taiga Syndrome to be in conversation with Pedro Paramo mm-hmm. or not so much? Oh, by the way, you mentioned earlier about the material conditions of writing. And um, and I think I, I didn't think I touched, touched upon that. But uh, the work that you're referring to, that book about Rulfo, um, had to do centrally with that question. I mean, how come uh, this writer who was born in the, uh, in the provinces of Mexico uh, was able to, to write these two wonderful books that so much marked uh, literary history of modern Mexico. And, uh, and instead of just, uh, in trying to answer that question, instead of just reading his works, which uh, many people have done in, uh, in wonderful ways as well, I, I went to do some research about um, his jobs and what these these jobs allowed him to do or not to do, and the connection that these these jobs uh, created with uh, government projects uh, that had uh, um, that were linked to processes of modernization in southern Mexico. So, uh, just to to give you an idea of of my Juan Rulfo, yeah, is not only my reading of Pedro Paramo, which obviously is is one of the most important works of. Uh, not only of Mexican literary history, but of literature written in Spanish. And, um, but at the same time, my relationship with Rulfo is mediated by all these considerations about the things that he had to go through and to do in, in order to be able to create that, that Comala, that city of the death, that, that place in, in which we are never sure if characters are dead or alive, uh, that limbo, so to speak. And I would say that in that sense, um, uh, there is uh, the kind of of uh, point of view 
the the kind of perception that that Rulfo inaugurates for Mexican literature, the attention to detail that is not, as he said, linked to any kind of a specific message. Uh, that's something that that I totally shared with with Juan Rulfo. That's something that I aspire to do in any case. Um, I'm less interested in in the in the aspects that um, you know abuse that portray him as uh, this genius that somehow just uh, appeared out of the blue. Yeah. And I'm more interested in, in ways of looking at Rulfo as a, as a, as a man of his times with, with a body and a history and a, and a, and a labor history that, that limited and allowed, uh, well, the literature that he created. So I, I think that... Um, that influenced the kind of relationship that he had with space and with geography. Uh, he was a agente um, de ventas. That's a, a, a salesman. Yeah, he worked for a tire company, and as such, he uh, he had to travel throughout the country, and he took pictures while doing that. And what I wanted to understand, usually you see, you see, I don't know. Uh, if you've been to to these expos of uh, Juan Rulfo's fo- uh, photographies, uh, if you see them, they, they are beautiful. I mean, you you would think that he is uh, a photographer, which he was. I mean, he he has that kind of eye and the technical expertise, and and just the the perspective of of his gaze is just wonderful. But what I didn't want to forget while thinking about his work and the way in which he looked at the world is that he was doing that as an employee. Of uh, of either uh, a private company that like this Goodrich Euskadi company, or as a, as an employee of the Mexican government who was so radically and dramatically transforming um, specifically southern Mexico, he participated in something that was called a Comisión del Papaloapan, that had a lot to do with the displacement of entire indigenous communities in uh, in Oaxaca and in in Mexico. So that adds complexity, ethical and political complexity to, to Rulfo and his way of looking at the world. And I want that. Yeah. So it's not only this beauty that we see there in, in the, that black and white uh, photography and, and that all these very interesting, interesting questions about death and life and, you know, suffering. But it's also that even more complicated relationship to Mexican government, Mexican uh, agencies, and, and process of, processes of modernization that ended up with uh, entire communities and ways of life that are also Mexico. Well, if we, if we imagine that the reflexive way that people want to hold forth a, a, a canonical writer is as a genius that comes out of nowhere, mm-hmm. particularly male writers. I yeah, think more yeah. than more than women. How is this received? Uh, given how cherished he is, yeah. I would think that perhaps it was unwelcome to to some quarters to <laughs> to peek behind the curtain and and make him more complex. I mean, I think perhaps there are people who cherish it not being complex to cherish this sort of magical being who descended yeah. down to the typewriter and made this incredible book. You know what Marguerite Jursener used to say about love, that it was better to love with your open eyes. Uh, and that's when, uh, when I started to see some of these, um, um, reception of, of the book specifically by, uh, um, una fundacion, 
the Juan Rulfo Foundation. Mm. They were very um, uneased by by this book. Um, and, and what I said is, this is love. I mean, I love his work, and it's been so important to me, but I'm willing to love him with my open eyes. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't think that adding complexity to, a, to a, an author that you cherish uh, is, uh, there is nothing bad about that. I mean, it's just, um, as I said, you add an, a different layer, you ask an uncomfortable question, and you get uncomfortable answers. But that's what we do as writers. Can you imagine if we were only asking the questions that are going to be appeasing our world? What kind of writers would we be? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm gladly a, a writer who asks uncomfortable questions, and that's the kind of work that I do. And uh, I, I, um, I take responsibility for that, <laughs> and, uh, and I do it as seriously as I can. I conduct research in archives in terms of uh, the Rulfo book, and as I did for No One Will See Me Cry. And I do all kinds of research, personal and um, uh, like in these other books and um, in the Tiger Syndrome. I mean, you have to go very deep into yourself to to come back with these words. And that's research as well. Yeah. So um, that's writing. Mm-hmm. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Christina Rivera Garza about her latest book in English, The Tiger Syndrome from Dorothy. Well, to, to return to The Tiger Syndrome, there's this theme of hunger and scarcity, mm-hmm. not only in Hansel and Gretel and Little Red Riding Hood, but also in the stories and rituals of the people of the taiga in The Tiger Syndrome who, because of the scarcity of food, have become, by necessity, complicit in the forest's exploitation and destruction. Yeah. But despite the scarcity, they have a community feast. Yeah. That is, in a way, I think, a political act of resistance against the scarcity um, that leads them, the scarcity that leads them to destroy the non-human. Um, which made me want to ask you some questions about communication and community. For instance, um, you had a public email exchange with Lina Merwane, mm-hmm. who came on the show for um, El Sangre and El Ojo. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talk about a book by Jean-Luc Nancy mm-hmm. called The Inoperative Community, mm-hmm. about unexplored links between his concept of community and the idea of communality and anthropologists you were reading at the time, yeah. like Floriberto Diaz. Yeah. So in this exchange, you say there is a relationship between communality and disappropriation. I know you've written extensively about community, communality, and culture in your as-of-yet untranslated nonfiction books. So I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about these themes in relationship to the Tiger Syndrome. Um, um, you cannot see me, but I'm smiling <laughs> because I love this question. <laughs> um, I've been uh, writing a lot about... Um, community, communality, <clears throat> and, and writing, because as I said at the beginning, I, uh, I'm always trying to complicate that, that passage from experience into page, and, and, and I really believe that there is an ethical questioning inherent to that, to that process. And so I, I, I was, I've been always looking for ways of, um, of, um, Going through that uh, in a responsible, uh, intellectually responsible way, and uh, and I have been reading a lot of these French theorists who are very, you know, they have they write beautifully and uh, and sometimes they have good ideas, 
but then when I started reading Floriberto Diaz, who is an anthropologist from um, the highlands of Oaxaca, uh, speaker of Mije, uh, I, I, I was just struck by the way in which many of the aspects that were so relevant for him uh, as he was discussing the idea of communality uh, had become for me in terms of my relationship to writing. And what was interesting to me there is that uh, he spoke of communality not only as, a, as a, an association of people, but as something that was glued by labor, actual labor and participation of, uh, of, uh, of, you know, of its members. Uh, so that's when I started to think very clearly, more clearly, I would say, uh, about writing as a form of labor and uh, not obviously not necessarily wage labor, but a, a, a multi-layered idea of what labor entails in this case. And that allows me to think about uh, critically, essentially about issues of appropriation, which have been so relevant in certain discussions, you know, in the experimental community. And discussing these ideas with people from Oaxaca, uh, I think it was a, a collaborative way of, uh, you know, getting to this to this concept of disappropriation, essentially uh, um, a way of uh, uncovering, opening up, uh, uh, disclosing uh, very clearly the, the many voices and the many components, other people's writings that are always including included in what we end up uh, signing as, as our own, right? So I'm... Um, uh, I think we always do that. That's part of our culture. Bart famously proclaimed that that, that was writing a series of, of quotes of culture. Mm. Uh, and what I what I the kinds of work that I'm more interested in right now are those that are taking care of making sure right, uh, readers know that um, what in 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 the writing process belongs to or comes from other sources. And I'm not saying this in terms of just the policeman who is trying to, you know, say this is yours and not yours, uh, because that's not the, 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 the issue that interests me the most. It's not ownership what, what interests me the most, but the kind of joyous, complicated connection that we established with other people's work and labor as, as we write. So I wouldn't have been able to think about all these things without uh, reading uh, Floriberto Diaz in Oaxaca. And, and yes, I've been writing about that, and hopefully we'll get a translation of those essays uh, in the near future. So, Do you in, think in, we're going to see some of your nonfiction books in English? I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> they look incredible. <laughs> I hope so, but I, I, cannot, I cannot say anything right now. Okay. But, um, but we are making efforts. Okay. We'll all hold our end. breaths in the meantime. <laughs> so you have this really amazing essay in English, The Unusual Manifesto. Oh, um, and you take this question of individuality and scarcity and you sort of recontextualize it around the notions of community and of debt. And I was hoping you would read uh, two paragraphs from it for okay. us. All right. Interconnected as we are, affected by human and non-human life in their myriad layering, bodies are, are history embedded. Our bodies are time, practice. In giving an account of oneself, Judith Butler argued that the tale of the I inevitably takes us to the space of the you, 
and, I'd add, to the terrain of the we. Once these connections are established as both material and constitutive, discussion about the embodied nature of writing has to lead to the denormalization of the usual, transforming it into what it actually is, a historical contingent condition we can change. Unusualness is the site of our potency. Unusualness is writing. Indebtedness. Writing is a community-making practice. If we write, we write with others, inescapably. If we write, we write about others, even when we write about ourselves in small diaries that remain hidden in locked drawers. Constantly borrowing from the language we share with entire and varied communities at once. When we write, we acquire a debt, a real, material debt, with the practitioners of such languages. It's an immense debt. It is, as Fred Moten and Stephen Harney argued in the undercommons, a debt that is or will become unpayable. We cannot hide it or deny it. The only thing left to do is increase it. We should render it visible in any case, palpable, far away from notions of social responsibility, which are often depicted as optional decisions depending on the ideology of each author, the dead I'm talking about here is both, both undeniable and inescapable. If we write, we are in debt. If we write, we owe. This debt transverses all writing. It shapes it. It gives it life, legitimacy. This debt is connected to bodies at work, gendered bodies, material bodies, bodies in conflict. We've been listening to Christina Rivera Garza. So I was curious about this idea of debt and the debt that we accumulate by writing as we um, draw forth from our writing predecessors. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what you mean when you call the literary phase we are in now post-autonomous? Um, look, that's a, that's a very interesting discussion. I took that from um, Luthmer, Josefina Luthmer, an Argentinian, brilliant Argentinian uh, thinker, recently deceased. Uh, and uh, he, he was talk- she was talking about um, the kind of works that, that interested, her, interested her at that point, works that were not were easily to classify as strictly literary, works whose major task was not to become literary but to produce present. And I thought that that was such a cool idea. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in words less because they are or not literary enough and more because they are relevant, they make sense, they've become part of our lives, and they, they are, in that sense, producing present. Huh. And that sort of connects back to the hope of a book becoming part of someone else's dreams. Of course. Yeah. Yes. I yes. love that. Yeah. 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 So um, I want to quote another thing from Jean-Luc Nancy from the preface of the inoperative community. Uh, the community that becomes a single thing, body, mind, fatherland, leader, necessarily loses the in of being in common or it loses the with or the together that defines it. It yields its being together to a being of togetherness. The truth of community, on the contrary, resides in the retreat of such a being. 
when I, when I think of community that loses the thing that defines it, the with and the together and the being together, I, I definitely think of borders and nationalisms and ethno-nationalisms mm-hmm. and the relationship of borders to bodies and, and of course, the current situation in the United States, among many other places. Mm-hmm. But I also think of exclusions on the level of language. Yeah. Um, in the Iliac Crest, the male narrators to female housemates speak an invented language that excludes him and sort of others him in his own home. And in the Tiger Syndrome, the multiple levels of translation always make us unsure of what is being said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the native inhabitants, they remain on the other side of a linguistic divide. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, they house our detective and our translator in a cabin where the couple they are pursuing once briefly stayed. And that cabin is a cabin that the Taiga native community avoids and fears. Mm-hmm. And so they themselves, in a way, exclude and other their guests. They've invited them to a space within their community, but it, just like the, the male character who is othered in his own home, they bring them into their home in a way, but in a sense, they're at the same time excluding and othering mm-hmm. their guests. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this question of exclusion in language goes to the syntax itself, also in the book, as you mentioned, with so many sentences that begin with the subordinated conjunction that, mm-hmm. which implies something that exists before, mm-hmm. but that we don't know and aren't provided. So, so I, I want to hear a little bit about absences and exclusion as theme and, and as linguistic device. Yeah, no, what what a wonderful question. What a wonderful take on the whole thing. Uh, you made me think about um, this issue of... Uh, guests, which is also central to the Iliad crest, uh, a guest that arrives to a home uh, and imposes herself, right? Um, and a hospitality that is kind of forcibly yield from, from the owner of the home uh, and in which he eventually will find himself uh, segregated, right? And um, so I'm, I'm always very intrigued by, by these uh, kind of oscillations, how one thing might become the opposite immediately after it takes place, and how fragile are, are these positions of, uh, you know, who is the host, uh, what, what are the rights of the host, and uh, who is the guest, and, you know, the whole complication around that. I think a lot of that has to do with my relationship to this country. I arrived here at the end of the 20th century uh, and um, thinking that I was visiting. Uh, I came here to, to do my PhD uh, thinking naively that I was going to be able to go back to my country. Uh, back then, as right now, uh, uh, Mexico has, uh, you know, undergone tremendous economic crisis. So... And I had an opportunity to to stay here. And for many, many years, I stayed here in my mind as a guest. And uh, it has, it's not been, uh, it's been until recently that I realized that, you know, if you're a guest for some 20 years, that means that perhaps you are something else. And uh, there is a different predisposition towards language and um, my connection with uh, the communities that I was living with, uh, and I am. And uh, and I guess all all what you were describing in your question to me has been uh, filtered through that experience and what that experience has forced me to think. So is this guest who becomes um, a non-guest 
uh, uh, now becoming all, also a host, which is uh, in a way, in many ways, translating things, uh, writings from English into Spanish has, has turned me into that. Uh, and uh, and it's not easy. It's not it's not it's not a stable situation. Uh, it's an always uh, in progress type of situation, and it's a situation that that um, has uh, important political consequences. I know that, that my work is only recently being uh, translated into English, and, and it's not been until I quit thinking that I was a guest in this country that I became more interested in, in, in the translation process. Mm. I've been uh, living in this country, writing in, in mostly in Spanish, although I've been also writing in English. I haven't published what, I, what I've written in English directly. But I think it's just amazing that I've been able to lead a writing life in Spanish in, in this country, meaning that obviously Spanish is not a foreign language in this country. Uh, there are about 50 million of uh, Spanish speakers right here, and about 10 or 11 million of those are bilingual. And, uh, and a lot of um, what I'm writing in Spanish is tainted inevitably by my very close relationship with English, something that to me is is way more relevant at the level of the syntax of my sentences than on the use of actual words in Spanish or English in a, in a sentence. But that's another conversation. In any case, it seems to me that that um, uh, my own uh, tran- my own transformation in terms of how I viewed my my connection with the United States and with English has generated a lot of the ideas that, that you see there uh, in terms of um, becoming a guest, ending that process, and, and becoming um, a more active member of uh, transborder communities. I don't, I'm, I'm not planning to quit my very close relationship to Spanish and to Mexico, but uh, I'm definitely way more interested now in, uh, in reactivating uh, a conversation that I've had for uh, many years with uh, certain traditions of U.S. Uh, uh, literature. And it was so funny. It was a conversation that I had with them, but without them knowing that they were in a conversation with me <laughs> because I, I was um, talking and sharing that conversation with my communities in Spanish in Mexico. But uh, I'm now uh, way more interested in, in opening up and becoming um, uh, a real participant in a conversation with others. And, and I think that the translation of these books are helping in that sense. Yeah, I would mm-hmm. imagine that would yeah. be. <laughs> uh, so you also, you also raised the question of exclusion um, not just the level of, of sentence and plot, but when it comes to gender. Yeah. As I mentioned, the male protagonist in the Iliad Crest is excluded from this hermetic language of his two uh, women compatriots, but he, he is also being told by many of the women in the book something that he doesn't yet realize about himself, that he is actually a woman, mm-hmm. um, despite how he sees himself. Yeah. And in your book, La Muerte Me Da, it is the male body, not the female body, that becomes the site for social violence, with the detective investigating a series of castrations. Mm-hmm. And in this book, we don't actually find out that our narrator is a woman until quite late in the narrative when her publisher hires a female double to impersonate mm-hmm. her. So talk to us about your desire to subvert gender 
at both the level of syntax and the level of story with these various mm-hmm. strategies. Mm-hmm. I think every time, every time that we, we take gender seriously, we have to subvert syntax and we have to subvert pretty much everything. Uh, right now uh, in Mexico, there are many young women, uh, uh, they're organizing uh, and denouncing sexual violence, specifically in uh, uh, within uh, the literary circles of uh, of Mexico, and I think it's such an important subversive uh, uh, act, something that I have never seen before in uh, in Mexican uh, literary circles. So, uh, just as in real life, when when women speak and when they speak their truth. Uh, when they dare to put their word out there on a table of negotiation, so to speak, uh, the world trembles. The world has to is transformed, and uh, and and the same happens when uh, when we are writing. When uh, I think. We are always dealing with gender, uh, things, objects that we touch are gendered, bodies are gendered. Uh, I mean, it is inescapable, but we have to take it seriously and we have to take it to the ultimate consequences. And when we do that, there is no way we can speak the same language. There is no way we cannot read in between lines a different story. I'm very interested in that different story and mm. and. Uh, and what this different story is going to do, not only for the book I'm writing, but for the world in which I live. Can you talk to us a little bit about your fascination with doubles? Mm-hmm. Because I, we have the female double in the Tiger Syndrome, and we have the doubling of characters in the Iliad Crest. And um, even in short fiction like El Hombre Que Siempre Soñó, mm-hmm. we have this question of doubles. And I, I wondered if it was... a something connected to versioning or or something else that's a wonderful way of saying it of of seeing it i i always say that that we we work with obsessions because we don't see them right and this might be one of them so um i i have that and now that you that, that you bring it up well, you think about Anelia Crest, Ampro Davila. Yeah, Ampro Davila. Mm-hmm. Although I see that in a different way, though. I was I was very interested in in rescuing and bringing up um, um, her work, which I think is beautiful and and very relevant for the mid-century generation. And uh, I, I wanted to, you know, to work very explicitly with that with with the way in which she constructs atmospheres and dialogues and things like that. But yes, you are right. There was Amparo Davila and then there were the younger Amparo Davilas. And there is usually, now that you make me think about that, there are usually uh, twins and, uh, you know, people who look exactly like, but they are not necessarily... uh, yeah, I'll go with you on that one. Okay. I think that's a versioning aspect of things. <laughs> All right. Let's just say it is for now. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I think of doubles in relationship to you, someone who's lived um, much of your life on the border, mm-hmm. um, who engages with the world through two languages and in conversation with two literary traditions, I did want to ask you specifically about the question of translation in relationship to your work as I've read that you participated in and were engaged in conversations, as you mentioned earlier, with your translators Mm -hmm. as they were brought to English. And I've always thought it must be strange to tour for a book in a language that you didn't write, but also at a time that's far distant from when you wrote Mm -hmm. the book. So you wrote The Tiger Syndrome in 2012. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and so the books aren't necessarily coming out in the order yeah. or or in any sort of timeliness with regards to the books that are most alive in mm-hmm. terms of what you're writing now. Mm-hmm. But I love how you've inverted the notion of translation in, in that you've talked about how your books were written in Spanish, but they were first conceived in the nest of English. Yeah. Um, and that, that it seems like this book is returning to its original language in many ways, even though you wrote it in Spanish. Yeah. So w- what does that mean that the Taiga syndrome is now returning to its original yeah. language? And you know, this is absolutely true. And it and is something that I hadn't thought about until I started to read, uh, to participate in readings uh, with this book. Um, I I just I just noticed that the conversations that I that I developed uh, around both the Ilya Crest and the Tiger Syndrome were so much as the ones that I imagine I should have had when I published them in Spanish. In Spanish, I had other kinds of conversations, and they were very interesting too. But the ones that I had imagined, the ones that had motivated me to write the book. I didn't find them until I was reading these books in public and in English. Wow. And at that point, I was, I, that's when it, it, it struck me. I was like, well, that this is what is happening, that these works obviously uh, were written in, originally in Spanish, but they were conceived in a language in which I was living. And, uh, and I've been just so, so um, perplexed by that. Uh, because we're talking about uh, two different levels. I mean, I wrote them in, in Spanish because, as I said earlier, I've been having, I've been very careful and very interested in maintaining that conversation with with uh, with my country and with my other country too, and uh, and uh, and writing in in Spanish. But I had to realize that a lot of the syntactic elements of uh, of the writing and and many of the ideas that I was dealing with belong to very closely to my experiences as, as a person who's lived in this country and mm. this country that is also my country right so I don't know what this is going to lead to and I don't know if I'm going to be more open about you know the writing that I've done in English I don't know if I'm ready to do that um, but definitely has done something to to the way in which I conceived myself as a writer in between borders, and as someone who who defin- definitely uh, uh, wants to be way more active in uh, in this conversation in this side of the border now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you've talked about how um, you live in an English language world, and in this world you write in Spanish. Mm-hmm. But that if you spend a long time in Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you spend a long time there, you'll end up writing in English. Yeah, and I missed the, English so much, too. Yeah, yeah. but the, you've, you've mentioned that in an interesting way. You said that you miss what you call your second languageness, mm-hmm. um, a more awkward way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. So if you're immersed in a Spanish-language world, there's a craving to write in English to create mm-hmm. this sort of awkward way of looking at things. And it reminds me a little bit of the way Valeria Luiselli described her process when okay. she when she was on the program, because she, she shifts between um, back and forth between writing in Spanish and English. Mm-hmm. But when she writes something in English, she always translates it back into Spanish mm-hmm. for the book, and then it gets translated into English in by English. her translator. Yeah. No, so not, not by hers. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But in her case, it feels like there's more of a, a spilling over uh, back and forth between the two as she's writing one mm-hmm. work. Um, whereas you characterize the mother tongue as 
an intimacy yield by familiarity, and the second language as an intimacy brought about through hypervigilance. Yeah. And I was curious about that word hypervigilance and what you, what you mean. So t- tell us about yeah. hypervigilance with second languageness and what it provides you because it's not, she's, she's looking, Valeria seemed like a more harmonious process and it sounds like you're craving something that is almost intentionally disharmonious. Disharmonious. Yes. And something that brings about conflict and, and yeah, it, that sense of familiarity through which things might become dull uh, or apparently known, right? It's something that, that I've been always very suspicious about. And when I say always, I mean ever since I've been in this country, which is, as I've said, many, many years. And um, the with the second language, and when I'm in Mexico and when I'm here, I mean, the issue of the second language changes, varies, obviously. But what is common to that is... Um, the sense to be, to be on alert, to be always looking at things. You, there is a, a complete defamiliarization of um, of um, the environment in, in which I find myself in. So, uh, and that's so useful for writing. That's just uh, that's that critical voice that is always saying there must be another way of looking at this thing and and you might not be seeing that because it's uncomfortable but then you have a chance to do that in a in a more explicit way because you have this other outlet mm. and so i'm always looking for that now and 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 i guess that's a reason why i miss english when i'm in a in a more spanish dominated environment and and you know I miss Spanish of course when I'm I'm, I'm only and for entire days only speaking English, and uh, and I think right now I have developed an accent both in Spanish and in English. I thought that that I didn't have a, a foreign accent in Spanish, but I've been told that I have a little bit, oh. and and that's just so strange. Yeah, and uh, uh, but I guess it's just part of uh, making the familiar unfamiliar. Uh, and and being able and willing specifically to 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 go through all its complexities and um, you know writing for me is a way of uh, of, of critical thinking. I mean, at, at the very basic thing of what, of what I do, uh, the possibility of looking at the world in a different way from a different angle. That's what the most important books, the books that I remember. That's what they've given me. And uh, and at the very basic level, I think that's the kind of book that I think I'm writing. And in order to do that, uh, this second languageness is, is has become increasingly relevant. It doesn't matter if I'm writing in Spanish or in English. My Spanish is deeply informed by all these discussions and by all the syntactic, linguistic uh, decision making that goes through when I'm writing. And the same for English. I, I don't I don't see that now as a matter of uh, mastering, but as uh, as the the willingness. To, to play with and to get to the ultimate consequences of whatever I'm doing in each in each language. You've you've written about a poet that I really love, Juliana Spar. Yeah. And you describe Spar as having distanced herself voluntarily from what you call the average English in order to say something about language and how, in your words, 
it forms us in uneven dynamic context. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you see that as a kindred move to yeah, what you're absolutely, describing? Absolutely. I, she has this wonderful essay, The 90s, and uh, you can find it online. Uh, and, and and that's what she's talking about, the the move uh, away from mainstream English. That's that's if i remember well that those were her words and uh, and then she goes on and analyzing uh, exploring a series of writers who do that not in terms of the relationship to identity but in terms of the relationship to language and i and, and what i get to think about that is that Obviously, we know there is a very rich uh, history of Chicano writing, of Mexican-American writing, and, and, and I'm deeply interested in, in that history. I was uh, last night at this reading by Canto Can, Mundo, Canto Mundo, Canto Mundo, and it was just uh, magnificent, and the, the, the poetry and the connection, it was just great. So I'm, I'm you know, very interested in that, in that aspect, too, of, um, of, of this um, exploration. But in terms of Juliana's essay, what, what really struck me is that, that she's displacing this issue of identity as something that is already formed and right there and more to this um, flexible, uh, uh, fluid, complex relationship in between languages. And, and there is a, a history of imperialism there. There is a history of power making uh, that, that we need to interrogate. And, and I think in that sense, this uh, second languageness is, is just a, a privileged position to do that. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to return briefly to the phenomenon of the Taiga syndrome, not mm-hmm. the book, but the, the mental yeah, uh, the yeah. mental or psychic state. So, so when I think about the danger of, of living in the taiga being the contraction of taiga syndrome, a form of claustrophobic anxiety mm-hmm. that's induced by open, endless, non-human spaces, uh, I wonder about borders in relationship to mental illness and mental illness in relationship to language. Uh, I was looking through some of your academic writing uh, where you've looked at the ways psychiatry and psychiatric terminology was used in Mexico mm-hmm. as a form of social control, at the implications of an insane person no longer being seen as a ferocious animal, but rather as a grown-up child, mm-hmm. and the ways vocabulary and psychiatric narrative were used to enforce norms around gender and class, as the people who receive these labels tended to be poor people and often women. But you also look at the way these women, these supposedly insane inmates, subverted and took control of the narratives. You mm-hmm. you said that as social beings, which you mentioned earlier, as social beings, we tell stories, but that is not necessarily the purview of the mm-hmm. writer. Mm-hmm. That contrary to what we think of, writer as storyteller, the responsibility of the writer is to examine, question, subvert, transform, and challenge language. And I was interested in this both to hear more about your relationship to story and plot, but mm-hmm. also in the way, <clears throat> in a way, these women, these insane women or insane poor mm-hmm. people who, of mm-hmm. either gender become the writers yeah. in, in your examination academically, mm-hmm. because in a sense, they're the ones not, um, they're not the storytellers or the subversion of the story. Mm-hmm. So the story being told to them, whether you're insane, you're a grown up child, and then their actions within that seem to mimic in a in an interesting way the things that you're doing with the plots that you provide us around a detective story or around a fairy tale and then within that the writer is 
I don't know if dismantling them or, or yeah. um, turning them upside down. Yeah, no, how interesting. I remember when I was uh, looking at the files of the La Castañeda, which is the uh, state insane asylum uh, founded in 1910, um, right before the Mexican Revolution erupted in November 20th. So the, the insane asylum was established in September, September the 1st, 1910. And I, I read more or less 300 of these medical files. And one of the things that was extremely interesting to me is what I found there is um, a life story as a way of, uh, of um, a dialogue, but not, not a free dialogue, of course. I mean, it was a conversation in between a doctor and, and a patient and usually his or her family as well. Uh, it might have involved also the participation of the police because many of these um, um, inmates, as they were called back then, uh, were brought to the institution uh, in, in police cars. So um, just looking at the way in which this very controlled conversation by an official interrogatory uh, uh, allowed Yet, uh, the possibility to these inmates to tell their story made me think about the many operations, the many negotiations, the many linguistic and social and cultural acrobatics that these inmates had to go through in, in order to be able to pass, to, to, for their stories to pass through the, the, the vigilance, so to speak, of, of the psychiatric language. So... I guess I, I've been looking at, at books and, and at writing uh, in that way. So what can I do? What kind of tools I can use in order for the inmate or, you know, whatever the, the uh, whatever uh, character will take the place of the inmate in some other books? The, the person whose story is said to be unreliable, the point of view that we are not supposed to be taken into consideration, the one who is always silent. So what kind of things have they done in order for us to be able to know their stories? That's something that I would like to, that I've been trying to replicate and, 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 um, and critically explore in, in much of what I've, what I've written so far. I think that this is a deeply political aspect. And uh, in, in, it's not only about, you know, uncovering silences or um, listening to the stories of, um, you know, the stories that have been neglected historically. I mean, all that is good and it's important, of course. But in terms of the, of the usage of, of our tools, what can I use, when, you know, from what kind of... Um, Subject, verb, predicate, construction, can I use or can I change in order for, for me to be able to e-code, if not tell, uh, tell the story, that story that I'm interested in. And the, and the kind of stories that I'm interested in are the ones that are hard to tell, the ones that people actually don't want to tell because either they hurt so much or because they don't know them entirely. And so that's that's when... I think when that challenge is in front of me, that's when, when things become exciting in terms of the form, but important to me, at least, in terms of the political consequences of what I do. Hmm. Yeah. I love this idea that the psychiatrist is the storyteller. 
I don't know if you've diminished the idea of the story, but you've made it very common. Like that's what we all do. We all tell stories and the psychiatrist is telling a story and the inmate, the person who's supposed to be powerless and is supposed to submit to the story. Mm -hmm. If they subvert it, they're the writer. And in Mm -hmm. a sense, they become the protagonist. Um, Mm -hmm. And our protagonist in the Tiger syndrome is a writer, not just a detective. And I just want to have you read a really brief description of her own writing practice in, okay. in her words. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a writer of minor noir novels. Minor no, noir no, novels. Novelitas negras, dice, no? Yeah. I visit myself organizing a small house that I had abandoned years ago and dedicated my time to writing about the cases I had worked on, but I wrote them differently. It wasn't that I solved in my imagination what I was unable to solve in reality. It wasn't that my dismal figure transformed, thanks to the grace of fiction, into a glamorous heroine or an ill-bred villain. My new method was to recount a series of events without disregarding insanity or doubt. This form of writing wasn't about telling things how they were or how they could be or could have been. It was about how they still vibrate right now in the imagination. When I was reading that, I just wondered if that was a description of your own writing, if that was sort of an ars poetica, this idea of not disregarding insanity or doubt, but also um, not really telling things how they are, but focusing on how they vibrate right now. Yeah. Does that, does that, do you see yourself reflected in the, your protagonist's writing philosophy? It it looks like a poetics to me. It does. And, uh, and, and, uh, and yeah, the, the short answer is yes. What I would have to say though, is that below, behind this idea of the, um, uh, telling things, how, uh, how they were. Uh, how they still vibrate. I have very much in mind that very famous phrase by Walter Benjamin. Do you remember that one about the, um, it was, uh, oh my gosh, so famous that I forget it right now, but it was something about um, looking at the story through the light, through the flash of light of the present. Right? Mm-hmm. And to me, instead of uh, using the, the metaphor of the light, which tends to clarify and is looking for a conclusion or an answer i think the issue of vibration involves more something that is that you have to feel in your body rather than that only in your intellectual capacity so that kind of present interest yeah totally well as a as a sort of a final question i wanted to ask you about a question about fiction versus nonfiction for Mm -hmm. you because the tiger syndrome was your last book of fiction yeah published in spanish in 2012 and since then, you've written multiple books of uh, documentary nonfiction, which haven't yet been translated into English. And you've wondered if you want to write fiction anymore. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to hear about that because your fiction does engage with many real concerns in the nonfictional world. It deals with borders and immigration, with psychiatry and gender, with femicide and sexual violence, the marginalization of women and women artists. So what made you feel like remaining in the fictional realm with these topics was no longer uh, yeah. satisfactory. It's been, a, it's been something that has troubled me for a while, too. Um, you remember what Carl uh, uh, Ovenau's guard said about fiction? It just, uh, it, I kept it with me for a long time. He said that in a world in which pretty much everything has become fiction, the real power of, fi- of fiction has radically diminished. 
And and I think in many ways that's true. Uh, what what can fiction do in a world in which you have caravans of people trying to cross the border and asylum rights are being denied to them? What can fiction do in terms of all these women who are who are right now denouncing uh, countless instances of sexual violence against them, perpe- you know, perpetrated on daily basis in homes and offices in in, in Mexico and, and every pretty much everywhere else. So very often I'm, I'm, I become frustrated. I'm rendered frustrated by, you know, the way in which we live. And, uh, and obviously I have, as many have done, I have to interrogate my own privilege and my access to language and printing and this conversation and everything else. But then one time, uh, one of my, during my most troubled stage about fiction, I, I was teaching this, um, this workshop in, at UCSC when I was uh, back then a professor. And I just started my, my class by asking them very honestly. And I, and I said, this is not a rhetorical question. I wanted to hear your answers. Is fiction relevant to you? And, and these were like, I don't know. It was a huge class. It was an intro to fiction class. I had about a hundred students in that in that place. Oh, wow! Yeah, and and I was just um, very disarmed. I, I wanted just to to know their opinions, and it was just wonderful to see them. They came up with the usual, you know, how fiction allows us to uh, to be on, on the shoes of others, and how it creates empathy, and how it allows to tell stories that otherwise my the authorities or the powers that be might not let go through, and. Um, you know, as usual, as all these answers were, they were also very helpful to me. Hmm. And so I've been, um, uh, I've been uh, right now. I'm working on a on a on a book that is half fiction, and and it, originally it was a work of nonfiction. But then some something has happened to me, and 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 I and I think that conversation that I had with my students at, at UCSD was a departure, a new departure for this con- reconnection to fiction. Right now I'm writing this work that, that has to do with an exploration of, um, of a very, very real historical process that took place on the border between Texas and Tamaulipas. It's a cotton um, uh, process, a cotton uh, uh, project um, that, uh, that developed in the 1930s as uh, many Mexicans were um, coming back. They were forced, they were expulsed from the United States, and they became deportees and were trying to make their lives right, right there on the border. And many Mexicans from, um, from southern Mexico were also migrating up north looking for better conditions of life. So my family took part on, 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 this, on this social experiment of Cardenismo in the 1930s. And, and so I wanted at the beginning to document the story and to tell it in a, in a more in a nonfiction uh, type of way. But then there were many things that, that I couldn't answer and, or, or not even answer. I couldn't even touch um, by doing that. And so fiction slipped through, found its way back. Mm. And right now, we were talking about being a host or a guest. Right now, I think fiction is the host of the story. And I'm quite pleased by that. It's not the same kind of fiction that I was writing before. I, I went through my whole turmoil and my whole questioning. It is a fiction that 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 is showing the the 
the process, as, uh, you know, what I went through. Uh, but it's still fiction yeah. with, with its power for empathy and its power for connection. Uh, and it's uh, the, the possibility that it gives us to, to see ourselves in others. And I think at this point in time in these countries, I think that's one of the most important political leaps that, that we are allowed. And I'm, I'm glad the fiction is there for us to do that. Can we expect anything coming in the next year or two in English from you? Do you know of anything coming out? I hope so. Uh, you it's can't, a very you hopeful hope so. Okay. <laughs> speaking of hope. Yes. <laughs> well, it was, a, it was a great pleasure having you on the show, thank Christina. You. No, thank you so much. I, I really enjoy the questions. Thank you for the conversation. We were talking today to Christina Rivera Garza about the Tiger Syndrome from Dorothy Books. Been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer powered, non commercial, listener sponsored, full strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. You can find more of Cristina Rivera Garza's work at cristinariveragarza.blogspot.com. Cristina has recorded for the Bonus Archive a reading of three sections of her long poem, Third World. And I'm also uploading a conversation with Suzanne Jill Levine, one of the most notable translators of a Latin American writers into English in the last 40 years. She talks about the pleasures and challenges of translating Rivera Garza, about the doctoral translation program she helms, and what it is like to pursue a career this way as a translator. These join supplemental material by Marlon James, Laylee Long Soldier, Carmen Maria Machado, Therese Marie Myatt, Sheila Hetty, Forrest Gander, John Keane, Jen Bourbon, Christine Scott, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>